Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1944 film Gaslight. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, Barrett, this is a movie that was interesting to me because gaslighting is a term that I hear used a lot. Um, but I was never aware of its origins. Of I knew what it meant, but I didn't know where it came from. So it's interesting to watch this and realize that this is a... Um, this and the play it's based on is, uh, you know, part of kind of the uh, the American lexicon now. Just some, just a, a term that we use probably too often. I think my uh, I think my understanding is like the opposite, uh, Sam. I, I I was I came late to understanding what gaslighting meant, whereas I was always aware of the film. So. Oh, well, there you go. Um, so so maybe let's start off. What is your history with uh, with this film? Um. So this is one of those classics that I've always known about, but I had not watched until the past week. Oh, really? So it's, yeah, it's just one of those, you know, classics that uh, I knew by reputation. and um, But it was a big gap in my golden age of Hollywood uh, lexicon. So um, did, what expectations did you have going into this then? And then what were your, uh, what were your first impressions upon watching? Well, um, I guess my, my expectations were I did not realize um, how many, uh, I, I did not realize the steps that it took to get to the point where the actual gaslighting becomes kind of the key element. I mean, I just, I just thought it was, a, to be frank, I just thought it was about a film about a guy who just kept turning the gas down and, and kept telling his wife it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't any lower. I, I really didn't, I did, really wasn't prepared for the psychological uh, complexity uh, of the plotting. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I, and, and we'll definitely get into, to, um, a lot of that. I, um, I think I knew a little bit more maybe of where this was headed because I remember when I first heard somebody, um, use the phrase gaslighting, I, I had to look up what it meant and I didn't get the reference to a movie, but I at least was like, okay, I, I have, I have this sense of where, of, what this must be about. Um, so, so I maybe came in expecting a little bit more of that, but I, but I thought it was interesting how, um, like you said, how, how the movie starts, the movie starts. And I, I almost felt like did I, cause there were multiple gaslights listed and we'll talk about that. I mm -hmm. wondered, did I start the wrong movie at first? <laughs> cause I was like, oh, this seems strange. Um, before we get into the film itself, uh, the name George Kukor, Kukor, Kukor. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard that name before. Um, I did, so I did a little bit of reading about him. What should I know about him as a director as we have this conversation? Well, you know, I think what's important about him as a director, most, most relevant to this film, is Kukor had a reputation as, quote, a woman's director. Um, and that, that came about because he directed 10 different films with Catherine Hepburn, uh, including most notably, I mean, The Philadelphia Story and, and Adam's Rib. Um, he directed Judy Holiday in Born Yesterday, Judy Garland in A Star is Born. He got his Oscar for directing Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. So he's, he's, he's seen as a director, as, he has quite a range, um, but he also seems to draw uh, really good performances out of his female uh, actors. And so Gaslight's a good example. In, in, uh, Ingrid Bergman wins the Oscar uh, for Best Actress and Angela Lansbury in her film debut wins best uh, or is nominated uh, for best supporting actress. And I think, I think that, I think all of the female performances, you know, I forget the name of the actress who plays Miss Thwaites, um, the actress that plays Elizabeth. I mean, they all give really stellar performances. So I think that's probably the key thing about Kukor. 
And that makes sense thinking about this film and, and, and thinking about this film in relationship to other um, other versions of Gaslight, because that's actually one of the more interesting parts of this, the, the sort of story around this film is that this is a remake from a movie just four years earlier. So there was a, a 1940 British film uh, based on this play. Um, and part of when MGM bought the rights to this to, to, to remake it, uh, part of the contract for that is that all existing copies of the 1940 film were to be destroyed and the negative was to be destroyed. So almost gaslighting, you know, the, the, um, the, the viewing public to say that film that you think existed doesn't exist. What film are you talking about? Um, now, the, the director of that film had his own copy of the film made. And that's, I think, why it, the 1940 film still exists, because a lot of them were destroyed, but not everything was destroyed. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I, yeah, I absolutely love that story. That yeah, I, didn't I see that film in 1940? No, no, I'm mostly thinking of something else. Um, I also discovered Sam. I mean, I, uh, I have, I was not aware until we, I looked into it about the existence of the 1940 film, which is exactly as MGM wanted it. But I have found at least one uh, film critic who thinks the 40 version is, is superior. Uh, I felt I read that a couple times. Yeah, and and then I discovered I don't know, I, if this is still true that it actually is still is available on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the next thing I want to do this summer is I want to check out the uh, the <laughs> 1940 version and see what I think. Yeah, from from what I read, it's uh, the the director is maybe more. Um, is sort of doing more filmmaking wise. So, mm -hmm. so, so there's some people who think that um, Kukor is not a particularly in, inventive with the camera or things like this, but that, that the, um, that the, the, the British film was um, now there's also before the 1944 film, there's also a Broadway production of this with Vincent price mm -hmm. in the, um, in the Boyer role. Yeah. And the role of the husband, and and so so all of this leads to something I read that was that I thought was really interesting is, um, and this goes to what you were saying about Kukor is that the the thing that's really inventive about this is that they they kind of put the biggest star in the the role of the wife rather than the role of the husband. It sounds yes. like in both the forty film and the what was a very popular Vincent Price stage production the the centerpiece role is the husband the manipulative mm. husband and here i don't know um i mean boyer was obviously in a, a lot and was i think was a pretty big star mm -hmm. by 1944 um and he's great in this movie but this is ingrid bergman's movie uh clearly when it sounds like previous productions there was a little bit less of that it was more centered on the husband yeah it's, it's interesting that actually uh both uh boyer and um uh, joseph cotton get billing before the title and um he was Boyer was caught or was cast uh, quite a bit against type um although although his portrayal relies on his type you know he's kind of he's seen as a usually he's a suave and sympathetic uh sophisticated leading man so in a sense the film by Cassium kind of plays off against that um I had seen him fairly recently in one of um uh, in, a, in a late film from uh, uh, Lubitsch called um, Clooney Brown that came out a couple years later. And that's a really kind of sympathetic character he plays. But here, he kind of takes that and gives it um, a little bit of a twist. Kind of what happens with Fred McMurray in, in Double Indemnity, this guy who audiences know is a nice guy turns out to have a sinister side. 
That's helpful to know because I was wondering if there because I, I I don't know of him so like I didn't bring any baggage into this with me in terms of who he you know what his typical persona was but I wondered about that because clearly like you said his name's above the title here clearly and it's a major role um, so so people would have potentially come into this with with some expectations that then get subverted by the film. And, and and just just kind of an, as an aside, the the building for Boyer and uh, and Cotton also indicate the the role that David O. Selznick played in Hollywood as an independent producer who had these who had these actors under contract, and then he would agree to lend them out to various other studios. So that's the, that's one reason why they're above the title. I also have to say that um, as much as I love Joseph Cotton as an actor and anything that he does, um, it. it bugs me quite a bit that he makes no pretense to an English accent. And coincidentally, I had just watched last week um, Billy Wilder's Five Graves to Cairo, uh, in which Franchot Tone plays a British officer who does makes no attempt whatsoever at a British accent. And I just found it, I find it so disconcerting. And, and it made it, in watching Gaslight, it, it made it difficult for me to be certain Although I suspected the cotton was actually an agent of Scotland Yard, um, I mean, it, it just—it just—I I, don't—I don't—I don't understand why they took that approach. But uh, I yeah. love his performance otherwise. But I just kept thinking, why is it? Why is an American working for Scotland Yard? I had the same thought. I was thinking, is this in the like the third man universe where he's just this American who shows up places and starts investigating things? Like, like it—it's—it it, was—it is very—it is very strange because. Um, either you know, have him put in an effort, have somebody else, or at least it, <laughs> make some sort of explanation. Because you can th- you can toss that off in 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 one line just to sort of say like, well, this is why this guy is an American, but working with Scotland Yard or has some connection. Because in the same way, uh, Ingrid Bergman does not have an English accent, but she grew up in England. But it's explained away very easily, right? Yeah, her, yeah. her her aunt's last name is Alquist, and she said, "Well, I'm not. I'm not from London, but I grew up there." You could yeah. do the same thing because yeah. um, I because I, I I want all the work in the world for Joseph Cotton, so I'm happy that he's in that he's in this. But I I definitely wrote that in my notes as well, and and later on I it throws me off in terms of trying to place where this is. I mean, I know it's happening in London, but whenever I see him as like the authority figure, I think, is it London? <laughs> you know, like you, yeah, you're you're kind of doing that. So. When this, um, well, I guess well, as we're talking about a- a- act, uh, actors in this, I also I realize I have not seen a lot of Ingrid Bergman other than Casablanca. I mean, that's that's the role that I think of her um, think of her in. So this was also interesting if that's the if that's the experience that I have coming into this. Um, uh, kind of watching her in this, where we're there. She, I think she, she's such an interesting character there, um, and is uh, in, in lots of ways a, a pretty powerful character in that story. And in here, you see her sort of um, slowly manipulated and stripped of her, uh, her her sort of power in the story until you get to the very very end. So, um, uh, so had. Uh, had I mean Bergman obviously like I said was in Casablanca was she in a lot more before this as well was she a pretty established star or yeah that's a good that's a good question Sam because I I think of this as kind of the launching point of her, of her career she she was in okay now now I'm now now I'm remembering but 
She actually started in films in the 30s, in uh, 1934, if I recall right, was her first film. She was in the Swedish cinema uh, for most of the 30s. And then uh, she came to the States. I think her first American film may have been 39 or 40, something along the along lines. But this is really kind of, this the mid-40s is kind of her breakthrough period. And really the 40s are the strongest part of her career. She has a fairly long career, but I think most of her best films are, are in, the, in the 40s with Gaslight and um, Notorious and, and Spellbound. Um, those collaborations with, with Hitchcock, I think those are really kind of her best films. Absolutely. So one of the things that, that I found interesting about this movie um, is that it starts with... It starts with a with trauma right away, right? That you right. have this, you know, you're you're in London, you you are learning about the the death of her aunt. You're like reading the newspaper headline. You even see her playing for uh, the fourteen year old version of her in 1875, uh, very briefly. Uh, it starts with that, but then it very quickly gets to her basically having overcome that that the at least the the appearance of the effects of that trauma because I, I was struck i rewatched the first half of the movie again this morning as i was getting ready for this and i was struck by the first 20 minutes how much talk of happiness there is mm-hmm. there is so much talk about like like even when she's when she's at her uh she's with her singing coach um the issue isn't that she's distracted or pained the issue that both of them acknowledge is that she's happy <laughs> and like this is why she's unable to focus she's happy she's in love and there so so it, it's what, what i find interesting about this movie is it's not about um him manipulating merely manipulating her trauma but it's about him <laughs> reactivating her trauma that like she seems like she is on a trajectory to continue to be happy. She wants to live in Paris. She like, like she wants to put those things behind, behind her. So it's not just him manipulating the trauma, but he needs to reactivate it. And you see, you see him doing that, which makes what he does even more sinister, you know, in a kind of way is, you know, is that, that, that he is pulling her, he's both making her happy and then pulling her out of that happiness and, and, and where she seems like at a healthy place at the beginning, you know, that he pulls her into such a, uh, a far less healthy place. Yeah. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to emphasize kind of the, the compliment of that, uh, Sam, the other element that I think it's emphasized at the beginning of the film, which is um, the threat that the past represents. So mm-hmm. as the carriage is driving away after the, after the aunt's murder, uh, she's told um, uh, that you, uh, you, you've got to forget everything that happened here. You know, and then of course the maestro tells her to free free yourself from the past. And one of the ways thematically, along with some of the visual elements of the film, that it has a noir quality is, as we've talked about with watching noirs in the past, uh, the past is always a threat in a noir. There's always something that's going to something's going to catch up with you from the past. There's a memory you've tried to bury. There's a person you've tried to uh, avoid. And one of the things this film does is it kind of marries a, a little bit of noir with a little bit of gothic um, and, and, and almost like a ghost story because you have Joseph Cotton seeing her with, um, at, the, at the tower. And he, he makes that wonderfully ambivalent remark to me. He says, I, I think I've seen a ghost. And I think maybe he's recognized Anton. 
I don't, I didn't realize he's recognized, you know, he's seen her, her they're not in her. So there's this notion that the past is something that you can try to bury and try to get away from, but it is, it is going to come back and, and haunt you and somehow um, pose a threat, pose a threat to you. That's really interesting to think about, you know, because it's also like, like, I guess I was, you know, I was saying she seems like she has gotten over this. Well, maybe she hasn't, but she, cause clearly she hasn't, cause clearly it doesn't take a lot to reactivate this, but she has definitely suppressed it uh, a great deal. She's suppressed these things from her past and it takes, you know, cause it's, it's at, what's interesting is the first time you see it come back is not with, um, with Gregory. It's not him bringing it up but it's Mrs. Thwaite on the train just innocently talking about, well, yeah, I mean, talking about her neighborhood and talking about, you know, she's reading this book about a husband who's buried six wives. Um, I, I, I loved that part in there that she's, she's this character who's just very much into murder stories. And, and the thing that excites her most is that this thing happened at number nine and you see her react to those things. Now what's great is you also get a moment when they're, when they're at number nine, where you see uh, Gregory also have this sort of thing from the past pop up when the letter comes. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because he seems like such a, a cool, in-control person, but he is also pretty easily startled by things. When, that, when she reads that letter and says the name, what's funny is it's not until she says the name when it's like, <laughs> clearly he knows what letter this is. He's the <laughs> one who wrote it. Um, but that both of them have these this potential for their past to like to trigger this thing. No, I, I, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. He he has that wonderful um, kind of uh, that line that kind of tells you audience what's going on, and you don't really realize exactly what it is um, when he talks about the power that jewels have, and then he, and then he talks at the end about he says um, the jewels were like a fire in his brain, and he wanted them all his life and does not know why. So they're both, they're both in a sense, yeah, they're both in a sense dri driven by the past. Um, I, th I think the other reason why, I want to go back to what you said about happiness. I think that's important too, Sam. It's one of the reasons why I think that is important. And that is that um, she has so kind of thrown herself into, in, 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 in him, thrown her life in with his. I mean, it's, it's not just that she's happy. It's that she is, she says to him at one point, he's cast out her fear. She mm -hmm. says, I found peace in loving you. So it's not just, you know, it's not just that this love has been um, something she's been looking for, but it really is like the, it's the, it's the solution to her life in a sense. So she's got so much invested in it that that makes her all the more vulnerable and, and trusting, right? I mean, that, that's why, I mean, it's really nice how well the film establishes the depth of her trust in him. So that really gives him the power of manipulation. So when he won't let her go outside, when he assures her, you know, you've forgotten this, you don't do this. I mean, she has no reason that she can see to disbelieve him because he is, he is the person who has kind of revitalized her existence. Yeah. Even, even though he does, he does think. No, so, so one of the things that I'm curious about with this movie is, we're seeing this in 2022 where this movie has a very long history. These types of movies have a very long history. Do you have a sense of say in 1944, how obvious some of these things, because we, I think, I think we see this as well, obviously from the first, I mean, there's a moment where the first time you see the two of them talking and he says, 
when they're talking about getting married and she needs to go, but she needs to go away for a week to kind of get her head around everything. And he says something like, I've been waiting for you for so long. And she says, well, we've only known each other for a few, you know, it's like, so it's like, there's all these little indications of like, Hmm, you know, like, like, like those things jump out at me. Did those jump out at people in 1944, do you think? Or do you think this was ground that was maybe less, you know, kind of, plowed over and over and over no i mean it's 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 newish but you know as you said you've got all the people that have seen this broadway play um you've got the people that saw the 1940 version where that's true but but i also think that that's why i that's why i was thinking about noir and gothic conventions because you have you know hitchcock did rebecca in 1940 so and, and and then you've got elements that come from other genres so for example I think one of the really early indications that I think contemporary audience would have picked up on is when she gets off the train and he's there to meet her. That was my next thing. I, I, I mean, it's about. like, I, I, and, and the fact that that is juxtaposed with the conversation with Miss Thwaites about kind of the Bluebeard character that buries, you know, six wives in the cellar. By the way, I love that moment when she says that. And uh, Paul and, and, and Paula uh, responds something like, "That seems a lot." I just, I just, I just love that <laughs> moment. No, so I, I, I think the audiences are pretty canny at this point. They've seen enough. Um, it's, it is. You're right. It is kind of the beginning of this kind of run of film that then takes over in the 1940s. There's like a dozen more films that kind of have this, have this theme. Um, but there also would have been um, Hitchcock's Suspicion. Came out in '41, and even, even uh, oh, may, oh, most notably, I f- totally forgot about this one, Shadow of a Doubt. That comes out in '43 with Joseph Cotton and kind of the Charles Boyer role. Um, so I, th- I think uh, I, I think those films would have kind of primed uh, audiences. Okay, I have to go go back to the scene where there where where uh, he meets her at Lake Como because there is. I only noticed this the second time I watched it. There's a very subtle thing that when she gets out of the train and she's looking back at, at uh, Mrs. Thwaite, you don't see Gregory yet, but you do see his hand holding her arm. Mm. So there is this sense that she is already in his grasp and it takes a while before you see who it is. You just see this. Um, you just know if you're looking at the right part of the screen, you noticed he's already grabbed her arm as she's talking to Miss Thwaite. So there is this this like looming sense of like grasp and control is already coming. Um, and it's a very I mean, it's a it's a deeply stalkerish thing to do to like she's clearly said, I'm going to go away to be alone. Yes. And lo and behold, he is there. But then, as you said, as much as she's thrown herself in with him, she, you know, he says, are you upset that I came? And she said, well, if you hadn't been here, I would have called for you. So there is this it gets it gets deflated right away because she she is so sort of thrown in with him. That's a that's a great moment, too. I'm glad you picked you picked up on that, Sam, because that that is a that's an element where I would say he may not be flashy, but I think Kukor is a good is a good director. Um, that the notion that you can see the hand before you can see the face and there's a sense of control. I mean, I think there's a lot of nice touches in this, in this film and that's one of them. And then as we go, as we go further on, you just get this sort of very slow and steady um, manipulation. Uh, And I mean, it's almost a how to guide of how to manipulate somebody. I mean, he does such a great job of making London feel like the thing she wants. 
so he can get to the point where he says, no, 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 we shouldn't do that. And she's like, no, this is what, this is, this is what we're going to do. Um, and, and you just, you just get the sense of sort of the power of suggestion that if you tell somebody enough that they're forgetful or they're tired or they're sick, the perception you create becomes the reality. Like she starts to believe and almost starts to become, or at least seem to be forgetful and tired and sick. Even though it's interesting when you get the like the cutaways to Elizabeth, the 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 maid, and talking, and she's like, she seems fine to me. <laughs> like 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 it is like those little moments are helpful because otherwise, kind of like the like like last week. See, you know what the filmmaker is showing you. If the filmmaker keeps telling you or having characters tell you this person is sick and not well, you believe it. So it's helpful to have one one person sort of say. I don't really see it, but that's what he says, you know? So, so, so you, you know, you, you get that kind of slow buildup of this sense of perception. And then he's also like clearly playing tricks on her with the brooch and with the watch and those types of things, you know, kind of setting her up for those things. Well, that's one of the obvious ways in which, uh, you know, this film is in dialogue with Amistash, right? And I think what's interesting to me though, is that in a sense, the epistemology is reversed because in La Moustache, um, he is convinced that he had the mustache and that she is gaslighting him. So his trust is actually in his, in his conviction about his own experience. Whereas in gaslighting, it's exactly the opposite. Her trust is in what Gregory is telling her and she just trusts her own, her own experience. So in either case, you have a kind of um, epistemological ground that becomes the basis on which, interestingly and ironically, things become unstable, because because your your because the decision of where you place your trust then affects how you interpret everything else that's going on around you. Um, I, I read a really great um, piece uh, on, on the website Senses of Cinema by David Melville. He wrote this in 2015, and he was taught he um, he talked about a lot of really, really interesting things with this movie. Um, but one of the things he talked about, and you've already sort of hinted at, uh, at at part of this, is how as she goes into that house, she's forced to deal with like diff like things that are almost like doubles of herself or different mm. alternate versions of herself. So when we see the painting. And the painting is clearly a you know, painting and everybody tells her how much she looks like her aunt. Right. So she mm -hmm. has the sort of haunting of the, uh, you know, of the, the memory of the dead aunt, they even say like, even at the beginning, the, um, the, the singing coach is telling her how mm -hmm. much she looks like her, but then you also get the, the, uh, another sort of alternate version in Nancy, the maid. Um, and, and Melville talks about how, like, if you look at, the way Nancy looks like her hair is done up mm. to look like, um, to look like Ingrid Bergman's like kind of with the, the curly tuft in the front yeah. um, that he said, even, even her face, he says is a, uh, a lewd caricature of Bergman's rounded cheeks and sensual mouth. So there is this sense that it's like, Oh, I can see her as like sort of a version of, of this. And, you know, we see that, that Paula comes to fear her comes to not want to interact with her or not want to put herself above her. like like there is the this sort of tense relationship there and we see Gregory mm -hmm. you know clearly like flirting with her yeah. and like you know so there so there is this sense of like we and and it's important that we see Gregory hire her and we see Gregory like clearly using her as a tool to get into the head of 
to get in to get into the head of Paula as well. Yeah, the, the, the flirting is really interesting because um, to me it's interesting because it's ambiguous. Um, I don't know if he's doing it just because it's one more woman that he can control. Um, I don't know if he's doing it because it actually helps to uh, it helps Nancy to be even more disdainful towards Paula. You know, whether he's doing it because once he gets rid of Paula, maybe he'll pick up with Nancy. It's it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to say. But I also want to pick up on yes, there's the similarity to her aunt, but there's also the way towards the end that Gregory uses the lie that she's just like her mother, right? Mm-hmm. And tells her that just like your mother went mad, you know, so too you are going you are going mad. Um, and so that's another way in which the past. You know, this mother she never knew, um, the, the past is coming back as a kind of uh, vengeful ghost that's going to drive her insane. I mean, whether that's a real past or a, or a oh, fake yeah, past I, doesn't matter. I mean, I don't, I, you know, you assume that her aunt must have told her some things about her mother. I mean, maybe she, in those days, it was so shameful to be insane. Maybe she wouldn't have told her that. But I don't trust anything Gregory says, so I'm pretty sure it's a lie. Right. And how would he know it anyway? Right. I exactly. mean, how would he have that? How would he have that information about her? Um, now, maybe he did because he knew the aunt, but he's not going to let her know that. So, um, anyway, whether it's true or not, the, the the significance of it is that the impact it has on her. Absolutely. Now, one thing that you mentioned that that I, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about, and definitely the things I read, uh, you know, this how this film relates to something like like film noir. Um, I, there's a lot of pieces that, that sort of put it in conversation with those, even though, I mean, I don't know that it, it lines up, you know, perfectly with what we would talk about as film noir, but there's definitely noir elements to it. Um, definitely when that, once they enter into that house, right, that house is, there's a lot of darkness and shadow and, um, and kind of just like the psychological, uncertainty the paranoia those types of things are there other ways where you see this in conversation with something like film noir yeah well i mean think obviously not only inside the house but outside the house the use of the atmospheric fog for example um and i think actually the character of cameron joseph cotton so so you actually get a detective and you actually have a mystery being solved so in a sense it actually has kind of two or three two or three different noir plots uh, plots or themes kind of all all thrown thrown in there um yeah are there are there noir films so so okay i want to i want to think of kukar kukar and um uh and 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 noir and thinking of a kukar as like a, you said it was like a women's women's director did that tend to mean that he made films targeted at women as an audience or just that they tended to have women as a centerpiece yeah, it's, it's more the latter. They tend to have women as a centerpiece. If you think about, um, you know, the Hepburn Tracy films, for example, and several mm-hmm. which he, he directed. I mean, those are those are kind of for a general audience. But no, it's more that the actress uh, gets the really gets highlighted. Okay, um, because as you mentioned, throughout the '40s, both before this, but especially after this. Um, we get a run of movies. Uh, uh, Emmanuel Levy called them "Don't Trust Your Husband" movies, right, like yes, yes. you know. Um, and and he talked about how the the house is usually supposed to you know uh, symbolize kind of uh, shelter and security and safety, mm-hmm. and instead it becomes this sort of trap of terror. Yes. Um, why did movies like this become popular in the 1940s? Is it the same 
impulses of film noir that lead to these types of movies as well. Why is why is this a story that becomes so attractive at that time? Because it seems like every year there's two, you know, two of two things like they're telling a version of this. Well, I guess you're you're um, you're inviting me to engage in uh, in societal psychobabble. Um, Go so for I, it. I guess I will do that. And and I guess what I would think about Sam is that um, 1940s, right? This film was made um, towards the end of World War II, so. People are facing all kinds of external threats, and uh, and one way to deal with one kind of external threat is to create a different kind of threat and show how it can be uh, experienced and controlled and ultimately defeated. So, to me, you know, one of the things that the films like this do is they kind of turn the you, they turn your attention inward. You you you're turn your attention away from what's happening in Europe and and uh, in the Pacific, and you look more at well, what's what's an internal threat we might we might face. I mean, later on, these become, you might say, films about the threat of communism. Um, but here, I think it's more the threat of instability at the most basic of societal units, you know, the, the, the husband-wife relationship, and how that can be threatened and at the same time overcome. And I don't know uh, that it's necessarily accidental that you have a character in Charles Boyer who's clearly a, a foreigner, uh, and the film is given a kind of a foreign setting so it's both it's both familiar and yet at the same time a little a little bit exotic. So I think it does what a lot of um, essentially horror films do, right? Which is help you kind of face your fears and ultimately have um, a really uh, powerful catharsis. I mean, I th to me, this film is very cathartic. I think that um, she, that final scene, her final confrontation with Gregory, is incredible. The tour de force piece of acting. Uh, and it's like everything that she's endured in the course of the whole story comes out. She becomes, uh, she, she regains her agency. Um, she takes revenge on him for every aspect of what, of what he's, he's done to her. Um, and then you get that, that wonderful line towards the end about, you know, when the, when the sun comes up, it's hard to believe that there was a night. So to me, it's, it's a powerful catharsis of all kinds of fears that people might be having at the time. Hmm. I wonder, and this is this is a super half-baked thought too, but we talked about this coming toward the end of the war. I'm thinking about about you know, if if a theme of these is like like, you know, again, you know, the kind of don't trust your husband sort of thing, like how, how much of this might also be rooted in you have a lot of people who were married right before like like a lot mm -hmm. of people got married right before people shipped out, mm -hmm. and then these people go and have I assume most people who go and fight in World War II have traumatic experiences, yes. right? You, yeah. So there is this sense of like, do you even know this person that you are married to? Yes. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that a theme like that seems like that would make sense. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a different version of, we talked, we watched a bunch of films about people coming home from World yes. War II. Like this is, this seems like the reverse side of it is like the, the people dealing with, this new stranger in the house, you know, and the stranger who uh, society tells you has this sort of control and authority by virtue of their manhood. Right. Like I, I, I want, I, I just wonder if, 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 if even that plays a little bit into, oh, um, yeah. you know, thinking about that at this time as well. Yeah. Um, one of the other things uh, in terms of film noir and, and, and uh, I just, this is another thing David Melville talked about that, that, 
Uh, he, he talked about this as another noir archetype, which I'm not well-versed enough to know, although he named a bunch of films. Um, but he was talking about the um, the uh, Gregory character as um, playing with one of the, the noir archetypes of what he calls the psycho dandy, uh, an immaculately groomed gentleman of refined yeah. taste and non-existent morals who would turn who would turn without scruple to murder to possess the object of his desire. Mm-hmm. And he says that this is also like a very common type in uh in in noir movies, but he says that 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 Cooker is is playing with that in this because he actually makes some changes to um makes some changes to the way that archetype is typically played out, particularly in terms of um uh Melville talks about how often those characters tend to be um you know implicitly gay or asexual and how gregory is not that you know gregory that 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 there there seems to be um uh gregory doesn't want to sort of have paula as just this sort of another jewel another object of beauty but there seems to be sort of real you know um sexual interaction sexual um, attraction between the two of them as well. And he says that's something that, that Cooker's doing with that archetype that doesn't always happen and points out how interesting that is that Cooker himself is a gay man. Yes. yes. You know, so it's like it, it, that, that, that it took somebody a little bit different to sort of play with that character in a different way. Well, I think the, uh, the psychotic dandy, um, I, I would actually identify um, Joseph Cotton's role in uh, uh, Shadow of a Doubt. He's definitely a psychotic dandy. Um, and then, um, well, I'm not sure that he's ever a, a dandy, but I think in, uh, in, in something like, uh, Robert Mitchum's, uh, performance, um, in, uh, in the, in Argos and blanking on the title of the film, the 1955 film that he's in where he plays the, the preacher. Night of the um, Hunter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks. But, um, you know, he, he's kind of, maybe not exactly a dandy, but certainly, you know, a psychotic beneath the, the surface. Um, yeah. um, are there other things with this film that you want to talk about? Well, I want to go back to the question you asked a few minutes ago about why was this film so popular at the time? Because, um, and it, it did, it did get nominated for seven Academy Awards, um, including, as we already noted, Ingrid Bergman for best, Act, got best actress and it also got best art direction. Did not get best cinematography, surprisingly enough. And I forget what did. But what I want to point out is best picture, best director, and best actor went to a very different film, went to Leo McCary's Going My Way, which is a musical comedy drama, a little bit of a drama too, but a a film with a very different tone uh, from this film. And that's the film that actually kind of took home uh, most of the the big prizes. A couple of other things I want to point out. One is I just, the economy of this film is really impressive to me. There's, There's really... You know, one, one person who thought that the 1940 version, which does exist, uh, was better was because it was shorter. But I, I think this film is very economical. And I think one of the elements of it is that um, there's, there's nothing misplaced. So like the knife that he discovers in the attic about halfway through the film, that comes back at the end. The gun, now maybe that's really obvious, right? We know we're still going to see the gun again. The brooch turns up again. But the one I really love is the fact that they, the portrait of the aunt is given such prominence at the beginning. And here he is, 
searching for these jewels and they are literally hidden in plain sight. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that that's, that, again, that's where I think there's a visual element of what Kukor is doing that he doesn't get enough credit for. Um, and the other, the other specific scene I'm going to point out is when Gregory and Paula go to the concert where he makes it appear as though she's stolen his watch. There's a beautiful deep focus shot uh, that shows Cameron between the two of them. And what's really interesting about that, Sam, is that in, in other angles, you don't see Cameron. It's like he, it's like Kukor deliberately framed that one shot. And then every other time he shows them uh, watching the music, you can't see Cameron at all. So I just, I think those, there are little flourishes like that in this film that I think are really quite fine. Yeah. I think that's, that's often the case that, um, that filmmakers who maybe aren't, uh, aren't celebrated for their sort of visual style get sort of completely undersold. Cause, cause honestly, as I was reading about the two, uh, the, the two versions of the film, uh, the, the 1944 film, the one we watched, uh, there's almost nobody I found writing about it visually, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that is the thing that people keep coming back to in the, the 1940 film, um, which makes me interested to watch that just because like, like, well, I'm curious kind of what, what that looked like, what, um, what people were talking about uh, with that. And, and finally, I will say that I, this to me is, uh, maybe this goes back to the noir elements of it, but this to me is a quintessentially black and white film. Um, it was nominated, it won the Oscar for art direction for black and white, and the cinematography nomination was specifically for, for black and white. And, and one commentator noted that it's, it's expressionistic, shadowy, and menacing. And I, and I think that's exactly right. And so the, the look of the film correlates with the theme of the film really beautifully absolutely absolutely so bear we're going to be taking a break for a few weeks is that correct uh that is correct all right so uh so we have a few weeks to watch our next film uh what uh, what do you have for us to follow this up well i was reminded uh somehow maybe in conversation with my son who just came back from japan a few months ago that you and i had talked about seeing a miyazaki film um which we have not done so I think that that's, that's a good idea. I think we should watch a Miyazaki film. Um, and trying to pick a Miyazaki film to watch is impossible. It's, uh, <laughs> you can't make a bad choice. Uh, but I want to watch Spirited Away, uh, just because that, that's been, that was the first film to win you know, Best Picture as an animated film. Uh, and it's, uh, in many ways, Miyazaki's most, most, most ambitious film. So uh, that's, that's what we'll, we'll do a little bit of animation next. That's fantastic. I'm so excited. Since we've been talking about him, I've watched a couple, but I haven't seen that yet. I was sure. sort of holding out because I thought, I wonder if that's the one Barrett would pick when he eventually picks one. So I, I've seen a couple, but I haven't seen that. So I'm very, very excited to, especially knowing a little bit about him as a filmmaker, I'm very excited to, uh, I'm, I'm very excited to watch that. So we'll have a few weeks to watch that. Um Barrett, thank you so much for for recommending Gaslight. This is a movie that, like I said, I I had heard of, um, but had never seen. Um, this is a, a movie that I was talking with my wife about, and I'll definitely watch again because she really wants to see it, uh, if for nothing else, because she's a huge Angela Lansbury fan. So to get to see 18-year-old <laughs> Angela Lansbury, um, who visually looks like Angela Lansbury, but doesn't sound like, I kept listening to the voice to be like, I don't hear 
her voice in that. So, um, so, so we'll, I'll definitely be watching this film uh, at least one more time. So thank you so much for recommending this. That's all the time that we have, but we will be back in a few weeks to talk about spirited away in the video store. Mm-hmm.